This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. Last week, the ACLU of Pennsylvania announced a settlement with the State Department of Corrections in a lawsuit challenging the department's use of permanent solitary confinement for people who are sentenced to death. Before this lawsuit, a person sentenced to death in Pennsylvania was automatically housed in solitary confinement based solely on their sentence and not on their ability to function in a prison's general population. Our lawsuit and this settlement have changed that. We brought this case with our colleagues at the National ACLU, our allies at the Abolitionist Law Center, and volunteer attorneys from two law firms. So for this episode, I talked with Amy Fettig, Deputy Director of the ACLU's National Prison Project, and Brett Grody, Legal Director of the Abolitionist Law Center. In this conversation, Brett and Amy discuss what solitary confinement is, how the settlement will change the housing conditions for people sentenced to death, and what impact this case could have in the effort for broader reforms around solitary confinement. This conversation was recorded on November 18th. Well, Brett and Amy, thank you both for taking the time to discuss uh, this exciting and historic settlement in this lawsuit against the Department of Corrections over solitary confinement for people uh, sentenced to death. Before we get into the details of what happened here in Pennsylvania and in this lawsuit, uh, Amy, I'd like you to give a little bit of context to what we're talking about when we say solitary confinement. It's a broad term. It can be used differently from prison to prison and jail to jail. Sure, Andy. A solitary confinement is almost never called solitary confinement in American prisons and jails. It goes by various euphemisms, restrictive housing, special management unit, special housing units, or, or even sometimes with kids, reflection cottages, which is completely not what it is. Uh, although the practice of solitary goes by very different names, it looks pretty similar when, when you actually go into a prison and jail. And what I mean by this is, in general, if you're placed in solitary confinement, you're, you are going to be either alone or with another person locked down in a very tiny cell that might be the size, for example, of a, a parking spot, your average American parking spot. It'll have uh, a toilet, a sink fixture, um, maybe a shelf, steel bed, a mattress, and that, that's pretty much it. And you're going to spend 22, 23, 24 hours a day every day in that cell, alone or with another person. And you might have the opportunity to get out maybe five hours a week. Uh, it's very common to have maybe one hour of exercise five days a week where you go outside and you are essentially put in a cage. Uh, most folks, and prisoners and, and correction staff will call it a dog run. Uh, it looks like a cage. It is pretty small. Oftentimes, that, that cage outside is not much larger than your cell. And that's going to be your existence. In the United States, in contrast to, to other countries, we don't just put people in solitary confinement for a day or a week or even a month. We're talking about years and even decades in, in these conditions. A very harsh uh, social deprivation, environmental deprivation, so that you're not really normally engaging with other human beings in the way that we need as social beings. And we know that that damages people. We've seen it for decades now. Uh, and that's why the ACLU and many of our partners around the country are fight fighting to stop the, this practice and, frankly, stabilize. 
And Brett, you're working with folks in jails and prisons um, throughout Pennsylvania. The Abolitionist Law Center refers to its team as movement lawyers, meaning you're led by the folks um, who are incarcerated, who are directly impacted. What have you observed about the use of solitary in Pennsylvania state prisons and county jails? So in the state prisons in the last 10 years, there have been some pretty significant changes, especially really within the last five years to solitary confinement within the State Department of Correction. These changes have come from relentless agitation from people in, who are incarcerated and from their advocates and from litigation and investigation by the Justice Department. The primary change in the state prisons has been a prohibition on holding those individuals who are determined to have the most serious diagnoses of mental illness in the Department of Corrections from solitary confinement whatsoever. So that has resulted in a pretty significant overall reduction of the number of people that are held in the restricted housing units. If they get disciplinary write-ups now, they are sent to uh, diversionary units, your new acronyms for us to all learn, diversionary treatment units or the secure residential treatment units. Um, it still, however, is an ongoing issue that people with serious mental health issues who are just not uh, categorized in that most serious um, category do spend time in solitary confinement, and there still is the issue about solitary confinement generating serious uh, adverse psychological consequences or mental health conditions where none existed before. The other uh, kind of parallel track where ground has been gained in which this current settlement in the capital case uh, unit uh, tracks onto is when it comes to long-term solitary confinement in which I know we've litigated a number of cases that have resulted in people who have been held uh, 20 or 30 years in solitary confinement being removed. And subsequent to those cases, I'm aware of plenty of others within the department where people have been released and successfully reintegrated to the general population. So the Justifications for using solitary confinement, even as short-term disciplinary measures for those who are most vulnerable to decompensation, or as a uh, kind of administrative security strategy for those who are determined to pose a higher risk, have been significantly undermined within the recent years because of the efforts of uh, you know people on the inside and their advocates, and the overall numbers have been reduced, um, I'm not sure where it's at now, but uh, by, I think, over a 1,000 at least. When you, you asked about the county jails as well, um, there's dozens of counties in Pennsylvania, and I'm not capable of commenting on each county jail, but I can tell you that our firm has been investigating the Allegheny County Jail this year, and we have gone on dozens and dozens of visits. In recent months, and the use of solitary confinement in that particular jail is absolutely out of control, and it reminds me very much of where the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections was, say, 10 years ago, prior to there being any reforms, and the solitary confinement of people with serious mental illness, psychiatric disabilities, intellectual disabilities is rampant, and it um, – is leading to a lot of self-harm attempts, a lot of decompensation, further disciplinary issues. So that is an area that still needs um, 
a lot of focus. County jails often don't get the focus that state prison systems do for a variety of reasons, uh, but it's definitely a problem that I'm sure persists throughout the state of Pennsylvania and um, something that's very much in need of remedy. Brett, you've mentioned that you all at Abolitionist Law Center have had numerous cases challenging the use of solitary. Uh, You also mentioned the changes at the state Department of Corrections around people with um, who are having mental health issues that was uh, uh, in part due to a lawsuit from the ACLU and Disability Rights Network, what is now Disability Rights Pennsylvania. Um, can you just give a quick summary for folks, for lay people, like what is, I mean, it may seem obvious to the three of us because um, our heads are in this all the time, but can you just kind of give a, a quick summary of what is the legal basis and what, how do you challenge um, the use of solitary legally? So to challenge conditions of confinement, of incarceration, under the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment, you have to show that the defendants, in this case prison officials, are aware of a significant risk to an incarcerated person's health, and they disregard that risk. Um, Whether the risk is serious enough depends on the court identifying the deprivation of basic human needs. So you have to argue that somebody's being deprived of basic human needs. While food and medical care, um, you know, shelter, proper sanitation, and hygienic conditions are readily identifiable as basic human needs. In recent years, especially beginning in the mid-90s with the Madrid case out of California and Pelican Bay, um, and then kind of picking up pace as we come to the current day, there have been a series of cases that have argued that uh, normal social interaction or meaningful social interaction, environmental stimulation uh, itself consists of a basic human need, as well as mental health, depriving people of basic social interaction and confining their world to the space of a prison cell the size of a a parking lot, maybe, maybe smaller, or a parking space, excuse me, um, and and shutting them off from the rest of the world, not allowing them contact visits with their family, not allowing any group activities, any group meals, etc., in addition to depriving people of a, we think, a basic need for social interaction, also inevitably has severe and often permanent damages to people's mental health. It can also have serious uh, consequences for people's physical health as well. So in order to prevail in the courts, you have to demonstrate that the plaintiff or plaintiffs in, in our recent case have been deprived of basic human needs, or they're at a substantial risk of being deprived of those basic human needs, and that without court intervention to uh, ameliorate the conditions, that's going to um, result in cruel and unusual punishment being inflicted. So let's dig into this case specifically. The ACLU and ALC, along with volunteer attorneys, challenged the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections' use of automatic permanent solitary confinement for people who were sentenced to death. Um, And I think both of you probably have already alluded to this, but Brett, I just wonder if you can describe what that meant for people on death row before this lawsuit. Uh, So prior to the lawsuit, they were held 
22 hours in their cell Monday to Friday and all 48 hours over the weekend. When they were released from the cell, it was only to go to some other tiny enclosure, whether it's what was euphemistically, euphemistically called the law library, which was simply a cage with a computer, or the exercise, which was the dog runs that Amy mentioned earlier, a chain-linked area, or to shower three days a week. Um, these conditions would last indefinitely as long as somebody was on the capital case unit. And for those listeners that don't know, in the state of Pennsylvania, you will be on the capital case unit usually until your sentence gets overturned. That is the most common result since the modern era of the death penalty began in 1978, or until you die from medical reasons, or in the rare instance, um, three people who have given up their appeals have been executed. So this means that people that are in these conditions who have to wait for their appeals to work out or for them to die of other causes are going to be in there for decades. And some of the members of the class have, in fact, been there for more than 30 years. And some of those, and there have been cases, you say that um, they could come off of, you know, out of that housing situation um when their sentence is overturned, but there, I think what you said there about until their appeals are final or whatever, whatever phrase you use is, is an important point because people would have their sentences overturned at a lower court level, but they would stay on death row while that case, while the Commonwealth continued to appeal the case. So rather than go to trial, the Department of Corrections has agreed to settle the lawsuit. Amy, what are the key provisions of the settlement? Yeah, I would say the settlement is, is pretty historic. It is the first of its kind, but hopefully not the last, and I don't think so, uh, because things are changing very rapidly around the country as we recognize the damage being done by automatic permanent solitary confinement. So as, as Brett alluded to, prior to this settlement, our clients were spending decades in automatic permanent solitary confinement. Uh, no matter what their behavior was, no matter what they did, they were trapped in automatic solitary confinement, the harshest, most confining conditions that the department inflicts on anybody. After the settlement, uh, our clients are going to be treated like they are on a general population unit. They will still be in the same housing unit, but they're going to be out of their cell uh, a minimum of 42.5 hours every single week. And they're going to be able to access work and jobs, which many are just desperate to do, to do work, to, to get education, uh, access to telephone daily and, and TV, uh, exercise at least two hours a day, a minimum of four hours out of cell a day, so that they're going to be allowed to socialize in a much more normal way, a much more humane way, uh, in, in a way that humans need. And importantly, one of the things that was really key uh, uh, for our clients was the ability to do congregate religious services. That was not allowed before. You can imagine for, for many people of faith, this was, was really painful. Now there will be congregate religious services on death row. Uh, and very importantly, graduated contact visits. Uh, because what we hear from people both in Pennsylvania but across the country who are subject to solitary confinement, the deprivation of human touch the ability not to touch a person, not to hug a person, uh, not, not to hug a family member, your mother, your father, your children, uh, is one of the most damaging and heart-wrenching parts of being in solitary confinement. 
And so a key provision of this settlement is graduated ability to actually have contact visits so uh, that our clients can now hug their moms when they come and visit, and that's absolutely critical. I also want to point to a really key provision of this settlement that's important for, for all individuals that are subject to solitary confinement, especially our clients who have spent years in being deprived of normal human contact. And that is under the settlement, there is a provision for resocialization. Because we know, based on long experience and, frankly, research, uh, that individuals, humans subject to solitary confinement, start, start losing the ability to, to actually normally interact with other human beings. They become fearful of being around human beings. Uh, it's very common for people in solitary confinement units to stop leaving their cell, to become afraid to leave their cell uh, because they're being desocialized. Uh, mental health experts call that a social death, and it is inflicted on people in solitary confinement. So when they are, when the door, cell doors actually open, they need help, many of them, uh, to actually start normally interacting with human beings again. Uh, because we've hurt them so badly. Uh, and that's why under the provisions of the settlement, there are mental health staff who are going to be monitoring and helping these men, many of whom, as we've said, have spent decades in solitary confinement, to actually leave those cells, to feel comfortable around human beings again, to give them back a social life. So that's, that's very critical. Uh, and importantly, we, there's an independent monitor who has been appointed and agreed to by both parties. Uh, Rick Ramish from the state of Colorado, who was the former director there, uh, who revolutionized and got rid of solitary confinement uh, beyond 15 days in that state. He's going to be the, the monitor uh, to ensure that the, the state actually lives by its agreement and implements the provisions of the settlement as, as they are written. So we're very pleased with that, and we are hopeful that this is going to change the way death row is managed in Pennsylvania, but also provide an excellent model around the country uh, to start being more effective and more humane in the way we manage our prisons. So as a general rule, as both an advocate and a communications person, I typically don't like to say the counter argument, but I think for in this situation, I want to at least put it up there to give both of you a chance to respond. There are going to be people who hear this who think, well, they were sentenced to death, they get what's coming to them. Um, how do you respond to that line of thinking? Brett, do you want to take a first swing at that? Sure. Um, there's a couple of ways to respond to that. I mean, we can go into how the death penalty is administered and how everything that is known about its administration in Pennsylvania shows that those who are sentenced to death are not per se the necessarily most uh, violent or pathological or sociopathic of individuals, but often suffered from other deficits in legal representation and um, people, racism in jury selections, the political occurrence of the time in which they were prosecuted, the county where they were prosecuted. So off the bat, we should just point out that there is um, a certain stereotype about those who uh, receive the death penalty that does not conform to what is uh, known about those who the death penalty is imposed upon, what's known about the evidence of of what it uh, means to receive the death penalty in this state. And when it comes to whether or not this is uh, necessary or justified within the context of, of the prison system, we also have 
a decades-long record since the capital case unit was first created in 1982 that for all those who are aware of it, especially the Department of Corrections, they know that those uh, on the capital case unit tend to be pose no greater security risk in the institutions and uh, typically less than people in the general population. Uh, you tend to have people who have uh, been there a longer period of time, so the age is correlated as one of the greatest predictors of um, criminal conduct, but also misconduct inside the prison. So you have a group that's more stable. They've been around for decades. They're very focused on working on their appeals, and it's relatively a calm unit in this degree of solitary confinement is, we would argue, not justified in any circumstance, but it is not justified based on the kind of myths and stereotypes about who it is that um, is unfortunate enough to receive the death penalty in the state. Well, and your point, too, about um, the way folks behave in in the prison and, and, and the the type of um, the way folks settle in into life in the prison, I think, is important. And, and to connect to that, uh, my understanding is that while we definitely think this is historic, there are a few other states that are housing um, people sentenced to death in similar conditions. Is that right, Amy? There are a couple of states that are already doing this. There are. For example, the state of Missouri has always just put prisoners who were condemned to death in, in general population and classified them as they would any other prisoner. The exceptionalism for death row really started in the 80s. Prior to that, it, was, it wasn't that common. Um, other states like North Carolina and, and Colorado have also uh, embraced a more mainstreaming approach. And I think, you know, to answer the, the question about, well, they were sentenced to death, don't they deserve to be in solitary confinement? I think you've got to remember that, yes, they are serving their sentence, but they were not sentenced to be tortured. And quite frankly, the conditions on Pennsylvania death row, the decades of solitary confinement, there's no question that that is torture. It's torture under international human rights standards, which prohibit the use of solitary confinement beyond 15, 15 days. We're talking about 15 days as compared to, you know, the named plaintiffs in the, in the Reed case, uh, they spent between 19 and 27 years on, on death row in sol permanent solitary confinement. Uh, so there's no question uh, that what the state of Pennsylvania was doing, uh, what many states continue to do, is considered torture by any name. Uh, so we have to reflect on what, what, who are we as a society. I mean, we may have the death penalty in some cases. Some states have rejected it. But even where capital punishment exists, that punishment is not about torturing people for decades while they pursue their lawful appeals. And as Brett pointed out, the majority of folks on Pennsylvania death row have actually had their sentences overturned, uh, either because the sentence was too extreme, was not warranted, or they were innocent. Uh, so what we're really doing is subjecting people to torture when they're actually following the process of the law, which takes a very, very long time. I don't think that that can be justified uh, in any society uh, that considers itself free, democratic, and humane. We just we don't torture people in the United States, and we shouldn't be doing it in Pennsylvania. We shouldn't be doing it on death row. We shouldn't be doing it anywhere. So to that point, um, of course, there are other states, other capital states that are continuing to house um, people on death row in permanent uh, and automatic solitary confinement. Do either of you think this case has the potential to 
impact how solitary is used elsewhere in the carceral system, either in Pennsylvania or around the country? Um, how can civil rights advocates use the result of this settlement to further diminish the use of solitary <laughs> in the United States? Amy, do you want to take a first first crack at sure. that? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, there's no question that this settlement is going to have an impact. And there are already cases filed, for example, in the state of Florida, the state of Florida, challenging permanent solitary confinement for people who've been condemned to death. Uh, there's no question that our settlement is going to provide a model. I, and, you know, I think part of this reflects reflexive use of solitary confinement it, it's been a one-size-fits-all tool for American corrections for too many decades now. Uh, and that's changing. There is not only a recognition on the part of the public uh, that solitary confinement does not represent our values and hurts people, but within the corrections profession itself, uh, that it has gone too far, that the solitary confinement is overused and, and misused, and, and changes need to happen. For example, the American uh, ASCA, which is the Association for State Correctional Administrators, the, the uh, organization that represents all of the heads of the state correction systems, as well as the major jails and the Federal Bureau of Prisons, had, had, has itself issued a report that says solitary confinement is a grave problem in this country. Uh, so there is a growing consensus uh, that we need to do something differently. And quite frankly, the Reed settlement here provides a different model, uh, a model that other states and systems can look at to say, look, we can manage our death rows in a very, very different way. We can do it safely, and we can do it humanely. And, and frankly, isn't safety and humanity more of our value than actually hurting people and torturing them? I hope so. And Brett, what do you think? Uh, is there a potential for this lawsuit, this settlement, to have impact on the use of solitary throughout Pennsylvania? Yeah, I think it just will further serve as precedent that long-term solitary confinement is not necessary. It is not justifiable. And to the extent that the Department of Corrections continues using solitary confinement, it is, uh, I think the, the trend is that um, those who are pushing to abolish it altogether are going to have to go to them in every other instance and say there has to be a pathway out. You can't keep people back there indefinitely. You can't keep people locked in isolation without some means to demonstrate that they are going to conform to rules and regulations of the institution and be, um, you know, have that isolation lessened. It is um, a recognition that they, if the department thought that they could defend this in court and that it was necessary for the safety of staff and others that are incarcerated to do it, I think they would have. I think, you know, the context in which we were able to negotiate this settlement with them has been, uh, we've been winning a number of cases, or at least getting to trial on them and winning some important court decisions on the long-term solitary confinement issue. So now that they've made such sweeping changes to what is, um, in many respects, one of the, the last bastions of solitary confinement, the most punitive place in most prison systems, uh, systems outside of, uh, say, Missouri, like Amy mentioned. I mean, something that is death row is almost treated as sort of untouchable, um, uh, at least politically and in the courts it has been to now. So for the reforms uh, in abolition of solitary confinement to um, 
reach this context uh, hopefully can signify, um, you know, a moment of even greater acceleration towards just getting rid of this practice altogether. Well, Brett, Amy, thank you both for your time, uh, for your insights, and particularly congratulations to you and everybody on the legal team. This is a, a momentous occasion. I'm, I'm glad we could team up and, and uh, come up with this result. Thanks so much, yep. Andy. Thanks so much, Andy. Thank you again to Amy Fettig of the ACLU and Brett Grody of the Abolitionist Law Center for their insights. There is a link to our webpage about this case in the show notes. Mark your calendar. The ACLU turns 100 next year, and we are going to celebrate. Join us for our big centennial blowout on February 29th in Philadelphia. Learn more about the event by going to aclupa.org centennial. That wraps up episode 35. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover, your host, writer, and director of this podcast. Until next time, be free. Be free.